in the book of 1 John. We're in a short series in 1 John, so uh, we'll be in 1 John 3 this morning. If you're using a Bible in the seat, it's page 878. Uh, If you're not, it's right before the end of the Bible. So go 20 pages back from uh, from the end and you're you're there. Good morning to you. Good morning to our brothers and sisters in Wilmington. Um, Hope all is well. There is going to be a word that we'll use... In the English Standard Version, that's what I'll be reading, the word is practice, and it doesn't show up in every translation, but I think it's an excellent word for today. I think it really captures uh, the heart of what John is trying to teach. So I want to talk about the word practice uh, before we uh, stare at the word a little bit. Practice. We're, We're a practicing culture. That's the generation that I grew up in, is generation of practice. The generation before me played baseball. We practice it. You know, there was, uh, at least I hear, I watch movies like Sandlot, and I, I know that at one point in time, there was a, a place where kids ran off and played baseball all day long, and there were no uniforms and no coaches and no schedule except be home by dinner. Uh, we practice. I mean, we invented the minivan, my generation. We know how to practice. Practice is a little different. Practice is cultivating talent seriously, whether it's a sport or an instrument or dancing, marching band, whatever it is, cultivating, uh, seriously cultivating talent. That's what practice is. If someone's very serious about a sport or uh, an activity, they will often in their practicing begin to take on the attributes of a well-esteemed practitioner, famous athlete. I've seen this, uh, saw this most when our family was sort of went through the baseball ringer when they were eight, nine, ten. Um, you see kids nine years old who have a way of walking to the plate It looks professional. I know they have rehearsed it. I know they've practiced how to get there, and they they hit their their cleats as though there's really dirt on them, and you know, and the way they their swagger and and all of that going on. I mean, they have worked it out, and they can't even hit the ball. Like it, but they're already living into. They have the braided necklace that whatever that thing is that they wear, and they wear their sunglasses just right, and they restrap their gloves after every pitch. You know, it's all going on. I mean, they have it all. My son, one of them, got into the the uh, sunflower seeds. I didn't know you can't play baseball without sunflower seeds, but apparently you can't. And I mean, he. There were times I thought he was going to run in from the outfield to get another mouthful of it. Uh, because they're sort of pl- they're role playing. They see how it's done in the bigs, and they want to be that. That's in emulation is in practice for someone who's caught. And it's not just a kid thing either. We have adult words for practice like rehearse, train, drill. 
We even use the word practice. You know, lawyers practice law. Doctors practice medicine. I mean, you ever think about that? You're about to go under the knife, and he's coming in to practice. (laughs) I think that is so funny. If I was a doctor, I would joke about that. But in those senses, practice, practicing medicine, it, it speaks of a devotion to a certain form of labor. I'm applying my life. I've seriously cultivated this talent for you. Practice. Okay? We'll get to the word, but I, I, I want us to, I think we know it, so I'm just putting it out there and, and letting it sit. Okay, well, First John, we started last week. We did First John 1 last week, and we're skipping over to, and we're going to do the third chapter today, but just to give you a sense on how we got started, I will say the book of First John is the center of the faith. So if you want to know, if you're sort of sitting on the fence or you're curious about Christianity and you're wondering what is Christianity, John is working it out for us, okay? This is, everything he's saying in this book is in the bullseye of the faith. And it started in 1 John 1 with him saying, you know the secret of life? He called it the word of life, but you know meaning, purpose, life, what it's all about? Since the beginning, he said, I'm here to tell you that I heard it with my ears. And I saw it with my eyes. I looked at it. I touched it with my hands. The meaning of life. I'm coming to tell you about it. And that it is he. And that he is Jesus. Jesus, life is found in him. Is how John starts his letter. And he says, and I saw him, and I heard him, I looked on him, I touched him, and I'm here to proclaim it to you. And when I proclaim Christ to you, and you turn and have fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ, you're also going to have fellowship with me. That was kind of the root of 1 John 1, is that to get, to get God is to have not just relationship with God, but to be caught in intimacy with God fellowship with God. That was the word he used several times was fellowship with the Lord. To be of one mind, unified. And he said in the very beginning, when you have fellowship with him, you'll have fellowship with us because we're, we belong to him. If John were here, he would say, I think, you cannot simply know the facts of the faith and be part of it. We are to experience the Lord. And I don't mean that in maybe like emotional highs and lows. I mean that in living in the realization of what he's done for us. Communion is that way. The Lord's Supper What does communion mean other than deep fellowship, to have things in common? We, when we celebrate communion, we do it amidst the fellowship and we fellowship with Jesus. You see see the, the consistency of what John's saying? When I have fellowship with the Lord, I have fellowship with you. Like, The Lord's Supper is not a quiz. 
It's not a series of questions we have to answer. The Lord's Supper is an experience of fellowship with Jesus in the fellowship of believers. Baptism's the same way. Baptism's not uh, uh, a treatise you have to make. It's not a confession necessarily. It's, it's an experience. You're testifying along the way, but you are experiencing the death and the resurrection of Christ, sort of walking with Christ through the motions of death and resurrection amidst the fellowship. That's what John is suggesting, is when we know Christ, we fellowship with him. And when we fellowship with him, we fellowship with one another. That was, that's the heart of 1 John, John 1. Now today we're going to start to pick up after that. So if Christ is ours and we are his, what does that begin to look like? What are the implications of that? We're going to Step that way. And we're going to do it by picking up in the 28th verse of the second chapter. So right at the end of the second chapter, John gives us a thought that, I don't know, I I think it's helpful for us to sort of ask about ourselves. Now, he's finishing off of the second chapter, so he's, he's having said a lot of things that maybe we haven't read, but... But I think the thought will stand alone, he says in 28, and now, little children, abide in him. That's like fellowship. Abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink from him in shame in his coming. There's that encouragement. Abide in him, right? If you know him, know what he did, live with him, remain in him. Because when he comes... So there's a positive and a negative in this verse. When he comes, he says, we want to respond with excitement, with confidence, with joy. Like Jesus is here. We don't want to shrink back like, ooh, he came on a bad day. I think you can imagine to yourself, uh, you know, if Jesus were to come, Would you, you know, would it feel like a touchdown? Like, he, like yes, he's here. I mean, would, it be, would you be full of the victory and hope of God? Or would you be full of the regret? Like, ah, oh, I was just getting ready to abide in you, but you came early. Like, I was a about to fellowship with you. I was about to turn a page from false religion to true religion, but <laughs> you showed up. You know, sometimes there's a lot of things that we can't quite put in words in our mind exactly how we feel about the Lord, but maybe we can sort of, this, this question is like a good weather vane. If he came, if he came, how would you feel? John's saying, listen, we abide in him now so that when he comes with open arms, we, we run to him. And then in the 29th verse, he heads into a new thought. And this is sort of the thought that we're going to follow for some distance. He says, if you know that he is righteous... 
you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of him. Okay, you hear that word practice? If you know that he's righteous, then you'd know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. There's, a, there's an expression that knowing about him gives birth to practice, to serious cultivation. And that those who do that, the phrase he uses is, are born of him. Which I think we use, when we come to the scriptures and we see born, we think of like Nicodemus, you must be born again. I think we most commonly attach it to like new life. I was dead and I'm now alive in Christ. But to be born in him, the thought that John is going to hang, hang around in is God is our father and we are his children. So to be born in him is more than just new. It's, I belong to him. I identify with him. I'm his child. I'm not, I'm not the child of this. I'm the child of him. So that's where he's, John is really going to be growling around the idea of we are his children. And you're, going to, you're here. It's going to pick it up. Let's just, let's go, right? Chapter three, verse one. Listen to how, now John's excited because for him, this is sort of the, the, one of the peaks of the book. I know like we just stepped into it here, but He's going to boast here. See, it's almost like, oh, you might, oh, what kind of love the Father has given to us that we should be called children of God. And so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know him. I mean, John is... In, in fact, some translations say, oh, what kind of love the Father has lavished on us that we should be called the children of God. It's almost wasteful giving of love is how he feels. That he's just lavished, poured out love on us that we should be called the children of God. But John says something else. He says, and we're not just called the children of God. We are. You see what he says there? And so we are. It's not just a metaphor. If you're in Christ, you're a son or daughter of the Most High God. That's how he sees you. And John is sitting in that. He's saying, can you imagine that? Imagine in an ancient Near East custom where family line was so important, so central to who you are. Who are you? You're known by your family. He's saying, can you appreciate the fact that God has chosen to take you and make you his and say, that man or that woman is in my line. He's born of me. Now an idea starts to crop up. And that is when we're, we are called the children of God and because of that, it says the world does not know us because it did not know him. There's a, John is suggesting there's a difference. He's, later he's gonna imply that the father of the world is the devil. That's what he's gonna imply. So he's saying we are the father of God, and the world no longer gets us. The implication is, is that we begin to look different. We begin to appear unrecognizable to the family of the world. That's the, 
the basic idea. And it's going to play on that in the next two verses. Listen, beloved, we are God's children now. And what we will be has not yet appeared, but we will know that when he appears, we shall be like him. Because we shall see him as he is. And everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. John is saying, listen, we belong to God now, not the world. And while we haven't fully arrived, we, when Jesus arrives, we'll know we will be like him. We will be, we are, we're turning into Christ. And anyone who would hope in him becomes, becomes pure. The, the thought is, is, become, is becoming pure because he's pure. I want to give you a, a quick, this is church history lesson, okay? And this isn't to be smart. This is, I, I think it, it plays a role. Our tradition of faith uh, comes from, it is of European descent, right? I mean, the faith, most, most of the faith that's in America finds its roots in Christianity in Europe. And most of the Christianity, Christianity that you and I are familiar with in Europe, it comes from the, what you and I would call the Roman Catholic faith or the Roman Catholic tradition. But if you go a little farther back, uh, it wasn't always Roman Catholic. There were, there were two sides of the church. It was actually somewhat geographic. There was an eastern side and a western side, okay? And the western side had, went on to become the Roman Catholic Church, and the eastern side has gone on to become things like Eastern Orthodox, Russian Orthodox, Eastern European uh, Christianity. But there was a while where they were, they were united, and they started to drift over time apart from one another. Sometimes it was because they disagreed on things, but sometimes it was because they emphasized different things. Even though you and I may not be Catholic, we still find our story in that, and we still emphasize many of the same things that our Western Roman Catholic brethren do. I'll give you an example. In the Western church, okay, at the time, you might say the faith that came out of Roman Catholicism, there was an attention to and an emphasis of Christ as our redemption. The, the subject of redemption was at the center of the faith. How, how did we move from darkness to light? The mechanics of salvation. So you don't even have to be Catholic to appreciate this. This is very Protestant. It's still important in Protestantism. The mechanics of redemption, the redeeming work. And in that, Jesus was seen in a lot of the images as the victim. The Christ on the cross what Jesus did for us is a strong theme that has followed the Western story of Christianity. How were we saved? Big deal. On the Eastern side of the faith, however, they had a different emphasis. I don't think they would disagree with all that, but their emphasis was different. Their emphasis was on becoming like God becoming like him. They know that Jesus redeemed, but their focus was on what happens to us in light of our redemption. 
So the iconography of the eastern side of the church is not Jesus' victim. It's typically Jesus' victor. It's different. There's a different mood in the church. There's different pictures in the church. There's a different focus of the church because their emphasis is on the triumph that comes to us because of what Christ did. That we begin to, bit by bit, become like God. In fact, one of the early church fathers has a famous saying. He said, God became man so that man might become God. It was Athanasius, and he's not being a heretic, and he's not saying some edgy thing. That statement is embedded in good Christian thought. But the thought is this. What God did for us enables us to become like God. which is what John is saying here. We have a different father. What does a child become when they grow up? They become like their parents. He says, we're no longer children of the world. We're children of a father. And when he comes, we're gonna be just like him. But as it is now, he's pure, so we're gonna become pure. I'm not trying to preach history or theology. It's here in 1 John, and it's, it's, at the, it's in our expression of faith, but it's not in the center. It sort of orbits. We have, we have great attention to how do I become Christian? And John is saying, <laughs> when you become Christian, you become like him. We begin to look like Jesus. He's not, John's not the only one to say it. G, uh, Paul said it, right? I have been crucified with Christ. It is I who no longer live, but Christ who lives in me. What is that? Jesus said it. Remain in me and bear fruit. It's in the word. It's in the center of the word. Sometimes, though, for us, it's orbiting the center. But this is the thought. As we grow day by day, measure by measure, we should expect to change degree by degree to look more like the Lord and less like the world. And as we grow day by day, measure by measure, the world will say to us from one degree to another something like, you're not like the rest of us. It may not always be negative. It may actually be someone, you've intrigued somebody. Why are you different? Because we are becoming like God. Four through six build on this. Here's the word practice, okay? Just remember what we talked about practice. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness. You know that he appeared in order to take away sins, and in him there is no sin. No one who abides in him keeps on sinning. No one who keeps on sinning has either seen him or known him. I mean, the logic of John is consistent. He says, if you know that he came to take away sins, this is verse five, and you know that he had no sin, 
And if you claim to have fellowship with him and to have been born of him and to be in the family of Christ and to be in fellowship with him, well, then obviously you need to be becoming like him because no one can claim to enjoy that fellowship and yet continue to practice sinfulness. When you want to grow up to be like somebody, you practice. In the devotion to sin, the practiced devotion to sin is irreconcilable with the hope of God. That's what he's saying. So look at what you practice. Now I want to protect us against some oversimplifications. To the person who, this is where people go, oh brother, because I've always wanted to get over this sin, but I do it day after day. I guess I'm a practitioner of evil. So I'm of the devil. Not so, not so I don't think that's the implication. The, the implication is not, you had better fix yourself right away. Remember what practice is? When you want to be something, you devote your attention to it, to laboring to become better at it. You're working in the craft of it. Okay, just because there might be a sin that you can't beat down or get victory on doesn't mean that that's what you're practicing to do. A child, a little one-year-old is trying to learn to walk. So they crawl all over to the coffee table and they pull themselves up and they let go and they fall. They do it again, they let go and they fall. And all day long, they, they crawl over, they climb up, they let go and they fall. Are they practicing to fall? Is that what they're practicing? No. They're practicing to stand. We as a parent, I as a parent don't look at this child saying, look at this disappointment. Just... Chronic faller. God. All he ever does is fall. I don't define this one-year-old by his effectiveness at walking. I grab my camcorder or my little iPhone now, and I film. It put you what day when I had little ones, and I film him learning to do what? To stand and walk. I don't judge him based upon the fact that he's not yet successful. As his father, I know what he's trying to do. And in that, I rejoice. I, don't, I am not frustrated by what he cannot yet do. I am looking at what he's devoted to learning to do. Just like I don't think God really cares if you walk out of this church on Sunday and fall once again flat on your sinful face. If you are trying to stand... You're practicing righteousness. It's different. What are you trying to do? That's the question. The grace of Jesus Christ has atoned for the sins of the world. I don't think he's overly concerned with the fact that you might not learn to walk today. Are you crawling over in trying to stand up? Then you are practicing righteousness. And one day you'll walk 
it may be when he arrives, right? When he arrives. If you're practicing righteousness and you're not yet walking when he, not yet walking when he arrives, you will still in confidence be happy he's here. And then you will walk. Verses 7, 8, and 9 repeat 4, 5, and 6. So verse 7 is verse 4, verse 8 is analogous to verse 5, and verse 9 matches verse 6. It's just a little bit harder, though he pump fakes you a little bit in 7 with little children. He pats you on the head and makes you think you're going to get an ice cream cone, and then he calls you the devil. <laughs> Verse 7, little children, let no one deceive you. Whoever practices righteousness is righteous. See how nice he is? As he is righteous. Verse 8, whoever makes a practice of sinning is of the devil. For the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the works of the devil. You see the victor in that? No one born of God makes a practice of sinning, for God's seed abides in him, and he cannot keep on sinning because he has been born of God. God started a work in you. His seed's in you, and it started a work, and it's growing. He's saying no one who has that is going to continue to be a practitioner of wicked sinfulness because they're changing bit by bit, measure by measure, one degree over another to become like their father, God, rather than like their father, the devil. It is inevitable. It is inevitable that the children of God become like him. So much Christian health comes from stopping, looking back at all of your sins and just living for the Lord. He died for those things. The perfect blood of Jesus Christ is sufficient to cleanse us from those things. We know from 1 John 1, he's our advocate. He walks with us to the throne. He not only walks, he intervenes on our behalf to satisfy the justice of God. All of that has already been said of us. Now live as his son or daughter. If you're new in the faith, this is a good stopping point. I'm not stopping here. And I'm not saying you can't follow the rest, but we start to, it's gonna take one step deeper for a second. And this may feel to you like, well, one day I'll get to that, okay? But for some of us, it's time to address this. Verse 10 picks it up. Verse 10 is, is a, hinge, a hinge verse. So it's remembering what John just said and he's taking us to something new. By that, this, it is evident. You want to know how do we know you're a child of God? He's going to tell you. By this, it is evident who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. Two thoughts. The old thought, he who does not practice righteousness cannot possibly be a child of God. And he adds to it a new thought. He who doesn't love his brother can't be one either. He's saying a metric, a visible metric as to whether or not you love God is do you love your brother? 
And here, brother, is, is really this room, okay? That's, in John's mind, that's the first order definition of that word, the brethren, the church, the fellowship. So as we read these passages, I want you to avoid the desire to, like the escape hatch of, well, I don't really love these people, but I'm a very loving person, okay? Chances are, if you can't love the church, which has, as far as parts per million, less jerks per million than the world, chances are all you really love is people who love you, okay? So before you call yourself so loving, Let's listen to what John says. And John says, I'll tell you, you can know if you're loving by how you love, not, how, not whether you're loved. How do you love? And let's look at how you love the church, the brethren, not the building. Verse 11, for this is the message that you've heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death and into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer. And you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. If you love God, you love your brother. John grabs an early story in the Bible. Cain and Abel is like the fourth page of the Bible. They're the sons of Adam. They both bring an offering to the Lord. Abel's offering is very pleasing. It's a devout offering of worship to God. Cain's offering, however, is mediocre, half-hearted, and the Lord is not pleased by it. So what does Cain do? Does he get mad at God? Well, kind of. He really gets mad at Abel. It's really quite fascinating. Abel didn't do anything. And God doesn't, didn't judge Cain's offering based upon Abel's offering. God judged Cain's offering based upon Cain's heart. And yet, when Cain found that he was in beneath the cloud of God, he took his vengeance out Right? We can't take our vengeance out on God. God wins. So what did he do? He took his vengeance out on his brother. I think John's using this image for two reasons. One, to unite for us. There's no way you can be in the Lord and hate your brother. He's, he's tying these things. He's tying your relationship with God is directly linked to your ability to love the brethren. And if you can't love the brethren, you don't really love God. So I think that's the first reason he's doing it. The other reason is, is because he's likening the world to Cain. He's saying the, the world, like Cain, does not understand you. They don't love God, and so they're taking, the, they're taking that frustration or anger or lack of love out on you. That's why they're doing it. But you are not to be that way. Because God's love is in us. We care for the needs of one another. Look at 16 through 18. These are my last two verses and we'll close. By this we know we love. <clears throat> By this we know love that we 
that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. Uh, I, 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 we should caution ourselves against assuming that the sort of church we grew up in and I don't mean to say a bad thing about this fellowship, the sort of American church that we were boiled in or marinated in, that somehow it's correct in everything. Because I see a very alarming trend, very alarming trend that I cannot reconcile with what we just read, which is the preservation of anonymity within a fellowship. Churches growing, some of them doubling, tripling, swelling in size, and yet swelling with people who are otherwise anonymous, who do not know one another, do not feel committed to one another. Church, church is not, in this book, in 1 John, if you want to know what's the center of Christianity, it is not four songs and a sermon with an offering plate. It is a reliance on the work of Christ, a fellowship with the divine, a continual progressive becoming like him so that it extends, that your life extends to others. That's what it is. Which means that consuming church has no place in the Bible. Like coming to get filled. I get that. And this is why I I don't have the best words because I don't want to slam something that's good but only good in part. You know what I mean? We do good things in part. But as we come to know the Lord... He says, you know what the litmus test of you being in Christ is? Is how you love the brethren. What does that mean practically? I mean, these are going to be annoyingly practical, but we have a very long hallway of ways you can love the brethren. Right? Sharing your life with people is loving the brothers, the church, the fellowship sense of charity, the willingness to get to know and entrust yourself. Remember talking about friendship. What is friendship? It's the act of entrusting yourself to someone. That is a work, a mandatory work of the Christian community. It will look very practically like over time, bit by bit, measure by measure, right? It doesn't happen overnight, so this isn't a guilt trip, but it will, you will wake up and notice you should be staying at church longer I don't mean coming earlier to be on time, just be on time for on time's sake. I mean just coming, coming to be among you. 
that over time the signet of the church will be the fellowship and not the address or the music or the sermon. Life shared in life groups, willingness to participate in the labor of instruction and and care. We have a lot of kids here. These are the sorts of things that bit by bit, measure by measure, you should feel called into more, not out of. How are you treating the brethren? That's his question for us as it ends. How are you treating the brethren? The first question he would say a little earlier was, are you measure by measure becoming more like the world or less like the world? Watch it. It's the first question. The the deeper question for those of you who say, yeah, I'm becoming more like God, would be okay. Then, how are you showing love to the brethren? We have the rest of our lives, but when he comes, we do not want to slink away in shame, right? We want to receive him in confidence. So let's abide in him now. Let's pray. Lord, we don't want false confidence. So, Father, I don't pray that you give us confidence. I pray, Lord, that you show us reason for confidence. And if that has to come through conviction to be different, then so be it. May that happen, please. But, Lord, if that simply has to come through the comfort of your spirit so that you might show us ways that we're growing. I pray that you would do that as well. May we each gain an appreciation that we are the assembly of God's people. And that if we abide in you, we abide with one another as well. We pray this, Lord, in Jesus' name, amen.